Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. I am the heedlessly ambitious Steve Guntley, and I am so happy to welcome my guest today. He, he has completely dispelled the winter of our discontent by agreeing to be here, which is pretty nice of him to do. Uh, you know him as the host of Geek 101 and the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast. It's Andy Bowman. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hello, and just for the record, Steve, I am, uh, I believe as Ebert put it, smoking like my life depends on it. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> uh, yes, so we're very excited. Today, we are going to be talking about Richard III. Uh, this is actually the second Shakespearean movie that we've talked about on this show so far in our in our short lifespan which is pretty cool. And it actually works pretty well. Like I just kind of put the list in random order. I wasn't trying to curate this at all, but this actually concludes the saga that was kind of started with chimes at midnight, which was covering bits of Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth. And then after the Henry six plays, there comes Richard the third that kind of closes out that whole series. So right. kind of worked. And what's uh, interesting about chimes at midnight though, is it's not a working of, Shakespeare at all, it's Orson Welles. And I'm sure, yeah. And I, I know for a fact you talked about that during the, uh, the Chimes of Midnight episode. So, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> like, it's, well, it's similar to this movie today. It's a heavily edited, uh, rearranged kind of version of Shakespeare, which is, uh, very interesting to look at. Um, so, Andy, to start off with, uh, why did you want to guest on this episode in particular? Well, uh, you know, like, like many ex edgelords. I always had a fascination with Richard III because of, you know, oh, he's a sociopath. Yes, yeah, sociopaths are cool. You know, <laughs> w w when you're a teenager, they're they're cool. There's some weird aspiration. So I can imagine, I like, cool drama teachers being like, hey, kids, you like the Joker? Well, check this guy out. He's friggin' fresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's something extra about Richard III as just a character... Even just an archetype or a villain where even off camera, he had to have admitted like, no, I'm going to be the villain. I know yeah. I'm going to be the villain and I'm just going to be the best one I can be. It's uh, Eber points that out in his uh, review. He mentions that kind of the tragedy of Richard III is that he is aware of exactly how evil he is while like people who are really this evil in real life tend to be completely self-delusional. He has complete cognizance over what a terrible person he is, and that's kind of his tragedy, is that he has to live with himself. But yeah, he is uh, he's definitely Shakespeare's most over-the-top villain, like capital V villain. Like, this guy is bad news, and it's pretty damn fun watching him operate. Let's talk a little bit about this movie because this is a very distinctive uh, original version of the play that you may not be expecting. It certainly was not the one I was expecting when I signed up. This movie is totally new to me, I should mention. Uh, every once in a while I come across a movie that I haven't seen yet, and this is one of them. And hot damn, I'm excited to get into it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, real, yeah. real quick, actually, uh, have you ever read the, the comic book series Kill Shakespeare? No, I haven't. Okay, I, I so, weirdly have a board game of that though. Like I won it in a contest. <laughs> I didn't know it was based on a, a comic book, but yeah, yeah, okay. yeah I have yeah. a board game. It's it's based on a comic book where <clears throat> basically every single one of Shakespeare's plays like take place in the same world. So all these characters, Romeo and Juliet, Iago, Hamlet, whatever, they're all in the same world, and they realize there's a god creating us. And of course, the Richard the Third character is like. 
hey, let's get him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I just really quickly wanted to drop that. Like the the real introduction to Richard the Third for me was that comic book series. Oh, interesting. Have you read the play? Uh, no, actually, I I, I have haven't not. either. Yeah, I I kind of missed out on most of like Shakespeare's histories. I don't know. Like, I think I had this kind of idea in my head that like. Even amongst Shakespeare plays, these are like the really stodgy, stiff ones, and that's really not the case with Henry or with Richard III at all, or with any of the Henriad uh, uh, plays that I've revisited since *Chimes of Midnight*. Yeah, definitely really cool. A little bit about this movie: Richard III was released December twenty ninth, nineteen ninety five. This was directed by Richard Long Crane, and it stars Ian McKellen, Annette Bening, Robert Downey Jr., Jim Broadbent, Kristen Scott Thomas, Maggie Smith, Dominic West, and Nigel Hawthorne. Hell of a cast in this movie. Um, uh, and weirdly as as, enough, oh yeah, uh, hmm. in 1995, apparently Kevin Spacey was in a production of Richard the Third. So if you type in like Richard the Third, you'll see a a lot of really awkward videos on YouTube. Yeah, with, that uh, you could actually Kevin see that performance immortalized in the one and only film that Al Pacino ever directed. It's a documentary uh, called Looking for Richard, and it was kind of like half documentary talking about like the historical impact of Richard III, and then half actual footage of <laughs> Pacino playing Richard in that same play with Kevin Spacey and Alec Baldwin's mm-hmm. in there as well, I think, and like a couple other people. Did, um, uh, did not age well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to kind of step away. Um, so, yeah, this movie, as far as availability, uh, not a whole lot. I usually try and point people in the direction of where you can find this movie. And you don't really have a lot of options. The only thing I could find listed online was Voodoo, which is the Walmart-owned streaming service, and you have to rent it from there. Um, it was previously available on Tubi, but like that's still listed as one of the links on Ebert's website, but that link is gone now. So, damn you, Tubi, you failed me. I will say uh, it is worth the three ninety nine rental. Oh yeah, 100%. to watch this movie. And I'm a guy who oh, every time, every time Shakespeare comes up, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do a Shakespearean. I don't, I don't want to lift. I don't want to watch uh, what is Joss Whedon's Much Ado. Sure, yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to see this. And this within three minutes was already like, oh, this is the best Shakespeare I've seen. Oh, it's gripping. It's like gripping right from the get-go. And I think I had a similar reaction with Chimes at Midnight, where it was a movie like I really had a lot of trouble building up enthusiasm to watch it, you know, because I have these preconceived notions in my head of what Shakespeare plays are and what I've seen enough bad Shakespeare theater. I've seen enough bad like or boring Shakespeare movies where I'm just like, oh, I don't want to sit through another one of these. And in both cases so far, I've been treated to very uh, compact, fast-paced really entertaining versions of the bard which is really cool to dig into really Um, quick about the play though have you ever seen the complete works of william shakespeare abridged i have yeah yeah some friends of mine were in that uh if if you ever see like a local high school doing the complete works of william shakespeare abridged go see it uh it is it's really hilarious clever take on all of shakespeare it's really funny and it's not boring at all no, not in the least. It's really fun. There's a really fun version of uh, Star Wars Unabridged as well, the Bible Unabridged. There's a whole, there's a couple of them. They're really funny. Uh, so a little bit about uh, Richard III as film adaptation. So, um, yeah, like I said, this is pretty well placed coming after Chimes at Midnight because this kind of completes the War of the Roses series that began with Richard II. So I think if I have it right in my head, it's Richard II. Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, Henry the Sixth, Richard the Third. I believe that's how it goes, and there are like multiple plays within the Henry ads as well. 
I cannot confirm that, but I'm sure you're right. What you're, I thought you came on here as a Shakespearean scholar. This is what I expected. Ah, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, so yeah, uh, we think the original play was published back in 1593, which would make it actually one of the first plays that Shakespeare ever wrote. Uh, he completed this kind of cycle before he really broke big. And for a lot of scholars, this is kind of looked at as like his first serious masterpiece. Um, but yeah, it, it is considered a masterwork, but this play has seen fewer film adaptations than a lot of his other stories. The first film adaptation of the play debuted in 1912, and that film, ironically, was actually thought lost for a long time until it was unearthed by a collector in 1996 and donated to the AFI. They did a restoration of it. It's a 55-minute movie. You can see it all on YouTube. And that is now thought to be the earliest surviving feature film. Like, a feature-length film is not just a short film. So, kind of cool. Uh, I tried wow. watching some of it. Real boring. Uh, it's lots of just, like acting in front of tarps and like big, big, like broadly painted backgrounds and stuff like that. It's not very, and it's all silent. So it's kind of hard to make any of it out. Um, yeah. So I would say the most famous version of this play that was filmed was probably Lawrence Olivier's version from 1955. Olivier was nominated for best actor for that movie. Uh, and most of the other filmed versions of that have been televised plays or miniseries. Like the most recent one of these was from 19, uh, 2016 with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Richard III. So I think <laughs> he could do that well. Uh, so while the play isn't often adapted directly, it definitely has a cultural imprint because this play actually has two of Shakespeare's most iconic lines in his entire catalog. There's firstly, there is the uh, the Winter of My Discontent monologue, which is really great. And then uh, the final, one of the final lines for Richard, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Both and, of these very famous lines have been parodied many times. Yeah. And one of the, the interesting things, I think there is a case for Richard III to be recognized as like one of the first anti-heroes. I, I, although I don't hmm. think he's actually a hero. I think he's just the protagonist and a villain. But this is clearly a, a study on what a villain is. Yeah, and I'm curious about how many other stories before that focused on the villain as heavily as this one does. Like, it is about a man who is openly evil and scheming directly with the audience. Like, that's kind of the cool thing about the, the play and the movie itself is that it makes you complicit. Like, he can conf- he's confiding in the audience. He's saying, like, oh, yeah, guess what? I'm getting up to some well, shit, and you guys are the only ones to know about it, and you can't tell anybody. Like, right, so it- and you can, like, see his gleeful, like, hey, no one knows how smart I am. No one knows how much like little finger I am. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you and you are the only people who can appreciate it. And that is so great. It, it gives you kind of a license to just like indulge a little bit in a wicked side. You know, you get to kind of follow along and it's like uh, walk in the footsteps of like an actual monster. And it's pretty interesting. It is also worth noting, though, that uh the real Richard III was likely not as monstrous as he's portrayed in this movie and in the play. Ebert touched on this a little bit in his review as well, but like there are a lot of historical inaccuracies in this story, and they think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, it, it was a new monarchy coming in at the around the time that Shakespeare was writing this, and they wanted to appease the new monarchy by bashing the old guard, and so they kind of 
recast Richard III as like this monstrous villain. There's no indication that he killed his brothers. There's no indication that he killed his nephews. We really don't know. I mean, the, the things that are accurate is that, yeah, he had a very short reign, only two years, and he was uh, usurped and eventually killed by Henry VII. Right. But was he deformed? Because th- there's an extra level there. Of, yeah. Oh, he was also uh, a deformed um, in on some level, whether it be a war wound or, as this uh, version puts it, a, a curse from the queen. Right. And like, yeah, I, there was no indication that re- the real Richard III was deformed. I think a lot of that came from a portrait of him where one shoulder appears to be a little higher than the other. And so Shakespeare <laughs> ran with that and said, nope, hunchback. And then in the play, they kind of recast it even further, or in the movie. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the director here. We like to spotlight directors when they come up. And this is the one and only time this director will come up. And you would not be, uh, you'd be forgiven if you hadn't heard of him. He's kept a very low profile. But Richard Lawn Crane, uh, yeah, I think he might be one of the more low-key filmmakers we're going to see on this list. He was born in England in 1946, and he spent decades as a theater director before transitioning over to BBC dramas in the 70s. Wait, Uh, wait, wait, Steve. Are you telling me that Harrison Ford's Firewall isn't on Ebert's list? I know. Shockingly enough, I was really disappointed, too, because I have the Firewall tattoo on my shoulder (laughs) to indicate, you know, that I know Harrison Ford's always got my back like he has with his family in the film Firewall. (laughs) Such a... uh, a bad movie. That's, uh, I recently had somebody uh, for my other show, Ultra 64, I had somebody write in and ask like uh, a question about the Mendoza line. You know, basically it's a baseball term, meaning like the baseline level of competence that someone can achieve before they get fired. And I feel like Firewall is like one of those movies for me. It's like the baseline of a competent movie that I could still watch and enjoy without it being bad. Wait, like, so is that like the exact opposite of the the Peter Principle? What's the Peter Principle? I don't think I know that. Uh, it, it's an idea in business where you, if you're good at your job, you keep getting promoted until you're bad at your job. Oh, I have not. Right? Heard, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that sounds kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve Carell from The Office is like the embodiment of this character. He's oh, good yeah. at one thing, you get promoted, and you keep getting promoted until you're bad, and then you stay there. That's, that, that, that's actually perfect. That's like the opposite. That's what Firewall is. Um, but yes, anyway, so Richard Lawn Crane, his first theatrical film was called Slade in Flames, which was a vanity project for the British band Slade. Uh, <laughs> I had to look them up. I, I think you'll know Slade if, uh, well, A, if you're in the UK, and B, if you've ever watched a British Christmas movie, because they did the song Merry Christmas, Everybody, and that's kind of their biggest hit. They also originated the song Come On, Feel the Noise, which Quiet Riot would make popular here in the States. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that was his first movie. It was well, a vanity project for Slade. We all know that the best British Christmas song, though, is simply having a wonderful time. Uh, oh, that's like, I think that's what they the play worst. in hell. That's like, that's the what they play in the waiting room in hell. Just all like my that. years in retail, man. Uh, just that and Mariah Carey is uh, all I want for Christmas is you. Yeah. Just, just ingrained in my mind with nothing but anger and hatred. We used to keep a tally sheet at the restaurant where I worked, like, because one year they over-ordered Christmas music. You know, you've got that Muzak <laughs> service, and they say, like, you can set a percentage, right? And they said, for some, they didn't know what, like, the normal balance would look like, so they said, all right, we're going to do 80% Christmas mu- music this year. Oh, no. Standard is 20. Standard is 20. And so, like, we were inundated, <laughs> like... We heard versions of White Christmas, like six of them in a row once. Like, we were going insane. Uh, Totally different versions of White Christmas. 
Anyway, I'm getting so far off the field. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I'm I'm dragging you off field, man. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, so yeah, mostly after the after Slade and Flames, uh, Richard Longcrane spent most of his uh, early career in films that never received a U.S. release. Lots of very quiet, like uh, uh, charming British comedies. Like uh, um, uh, I forget the one he did one with Michael Palin that was kind of like a minor, um, like a minor little sex comedy about the clergy and. Yeah, uh, but this movie was kind of like his big breakthrough. This one got a lot of positive press when it came out, and it earned him actually the Silver Bear Award from the Berlin Film Festival, which is what they give to Best Director. Uh, it was also nominated for the Golden Bear for Best Picture. It lost that year to Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility. Um, but yeah, Long Crane was able to capitalize on that film's success by uh, directing two moderately successful mainstream films, one of them, uh, as previously mentioned, is the Harrison Ford thriller Firewall from 2004. And the other, uh, I think from that same year even, is uh, the romantic comedy Wimbledon with Kirsten Dunst and Paul Bettany, another movie that is aggressively okay. You know, uh, uh, I don't remember Firewall very well, but does Harrison Ford ever say, like, get off my network? <laughs> Give up your Wi-Fi password. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, Richard Longcrane also directed the second episode of the legendary HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. So if you've seen that name, it's probably from that. Uh, he seems to be retired now, still with us, but he hasn't made a film since 2017. Uh, from what I understand, he's also a very acclaimed and accomplished sculptor. So I believe that's kind of how he's spending his autumn years lately. Uh, you know, I like highlighting him because he is one of those directors that, uh, falls through the cracks a little bit. I'm glad that he had this one film to kind of get him on the list i don't know i like it when like underdog directors that you or like journeyman directors like this kind of knock it out of the park at least once in their career you know right and and another thing about this film is i know it is based on uh mckellen's like 1990 performance mm -hmm. you know like a specific production but you can feel the passion that the uh, richard or dick long crane i'm sure i'm sure that's what he prefers to be called uh that he and mckellen have for this character and for being a little different with Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, they, they're not being quite so precious with it. So yeah, the, the screenplay for this movie, like you said, it was based on that 1990 adaptation, which a lot of critics said was the best performance of Richard III they'd ever seen. It was kind of like this massive, massive hit. And uh, uh, McKellen obviously was starring in that. And this adaptation of the film was actually co-written by Richard Longcrane and Ian McKellen. He, he kind of pitched in and wrote, adapted the script himself. He also acted as a producer. Like, he was really a major uh, creative force behind getting this movie made. Um, I, I do want to see, like, what the script looks like, because this is, this is one of those Shakespeare adaptations that uses most of the lines from the play. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a lot of... It's a lot of visual imagery and visual uh, flair that really gives this a unique taste. Uh, so I, I'd love to know like what that script looks like. Yeah, I'd be curious. I'm. I think this might have been McKellen's first like lead role in a film. He'd uh, he'd been kicking around supporting roles for a little bit, and he uh, was very very acclaimed on the stage. But like he hadn't really taken on a lead role yet. And obviously he was going to blow up a couple years later with Lord of the Rings and X-Men coming out right around the same time. And now he's just a yeah. cultural institution and everyone loves Ian McKellen. And, and, and real quick, uh, did did he look noticeably younger to you than he did in uh, like X-Men? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even younger, like the gap between this and X-Men is five years. 
but right. like he uh, looks he looks significantly younger like by comparison but like he looks younger than five years younger you know yeah 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 it's it's really weird and it's really bizarre because uh what maggie smith pops up later and she looks the exact same as that's she does so now weird. i think that's kind of like a uh uh Orson Welles and Citizen Kane kind of thing where the makeup effects were so good that they just kind of nailed exactly what they would grow up to look like. That's kind of happened. Like Wells grew up to look exactly like older Kane and Maggie Smith, like got older to look exactly like she looks in this movie. In this movie, she's only 58 years old. She's only five years older than Ian McKellen and she's playing his mother. She's actually uh, several years younger than John Wood, who plays her other son, Edward. So, (laughs) you know, trick casting there, but you know, she nails it with Hollywood. (laughs) I, I am okay with Maggie Smith being given all the lines in the world. And I know yeah. she and me and McKellen are, are friends for like 40 something years now. Yeah. Um, but I can just like hear her calling, uh, McKellen, Mr. Potter or something. Or... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you it, can see it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's also definitely. weird. Cause, uh, Robert Downey looks pretty much the same too. Yeah. Weirdly. Like for, for someone who is as heavily into substance abuse at the time of this movie, he, he looks great. He hasn't aged much at all. Um, so yeah, the, uh, Ian McKellen actually considers this movie to be his proudest accomplishment. And I think it was because not only is his performance incredible, he was very involved. It, this was a passion project. He was kind of the one who spearheaded it and got it made uh, into the successful movie it was. So McKellen specifically wanted to find a way to introduce this play to people who would be afraid of watching Shakespeare. Like he didn't want to make it like, you know, condescending or anything like that, but he wanted to, he wanted in because this is at its heart, like an exciting story and yeah. people are kind of afraid of it because it's also couched in uh, all these old politics from like four or 500 years ago and all these different Kings and popes and Lords and everything like that. It gets a little overwhelming and the language can be hard to parse if you're not really schooled in, in Shakespearean script. Well, and, uh, and Steve, let's actually talk about the the language for a second here. Yeah. Because, uh, when, whenever there's a Shakespearean, uh, thing on I always when I always turn on subtitles but it takes it takes just a few minutes and your brain adapts to what they're maybe not exactly what they're saying but you get the gist super quick yeah oh absolutely yeah even if you're not understanding every single word here and this is the same thing that uh they did so well in chimes at midnight you know th- a lot of the a lot of the work of Shakespearean actor is going to be coming from trying to make this dialogue sound like it was something that could be spoken by a human person and and using your body language to convey the tone, even if the the specific meanings of the words might be lost. Uh, right. And I think they do that to exceptionally great effect here. One of the yeah, es- yeah, especially just the double talk that Richard is constantly doing where he's expressing his condolences for the death of somebody. Yeah. But he's really happy. And of course, because we're the audience, we see him being happy. Oh yeah. Yeah. We see him like reveling in all of this. And I think like, if you want to see like a really interesting use, like a really interesting example of how McKellen tried to modernize this story a little bit, it's not just in the trappings or the special effects or anything like that. It's in the fact that you don't hear a spoken word in this movie for the first 10 minutes. Like they're letting you get immersed into the world without having to worry about language or anything like that. The opening scene is, you know, that people walking around planning in a war room and making, you know, uh, making these strategies and everything. And uh, we we know that there's a war. We know that the, the Yorks and the Lancasters are uh, feuding over the crown of England. 
and that uh, the Yorks are kind of on their way to a decisive victory. And that's what we see. People are casually eating lunch in this building when all of a sudden a tank smashes through the wall. <laughs> Armed soldiers burst in, blood, guts, shooting in the head. Everything's going crazy. And it's then, so unexpected. It's, it's so, so unexpected. unexpected. <laughs> and then we even get like it almost uh, like I did laugh a little bit. I don't know. I, th- I think it was uh, oh, a little oh, goofy. I think but this like, is a dark comedy. I, oh yeah, this has to be a dark comedy. But like with the uh, with with the letters of the title of the movie being spelled out with gunshots, it's like <laughs> bam, bam, rare R I C A. I like I laughed a little bit at that. Like that is a very 1995 post Tarantino move. I I, I you know it, it's very <laughs> silly, but it's pretty fun. But even from there, we get to go to the celebration party of all the Yorks sitting around, like celebrating their victory. And even then, we're getting to see the characters, the cameras panning around, we're seeing their dynamics, but nobody is speaking yet. We actually don't know uh, until uh, Richard stands up at the podium whether or not it's going to be the Shakespearean text or if it's going to be a completely different interpretation. Like, I had no idea, I wasn't sure. Right. And my wife and I were like, okay, well, maybe he's just doing just like the speech. Yeah. In Shakespearean. And when it cuts, uh, we don't even see the whole speech. That, that That's like one of the brilliant parts is it cuts to him uh, in the bathroom. And, and that's amazing because it, it, we zoom in on his mouth while he's speaking. He's giving this impassioned, like a victory speech to everybody in the room. And then he finishes it by like muttering as he wanders into the bathroom and like takes a leak. And then he yeah, goes over to big, wash his hands, looks in the, the mirror. Big and the moment right there. The big right? reveal is that he's looking at someone in the mirror, and then we turn around and he's looking at us. Realize he's looking at us. He's bringing yeah. us in. He's going to be confiding in us and talking directly to the camera, and uh, just basically hatching out his schemes right in front of us. And we're going to be a part of it. Right, and that's a brilliant way to handle soliloquies, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, are the character talking to the audience. Yeah, and they don't even try to make the the. Uh, Like they don't even try to pretend that he's saying these words for anyone but us. And he even wags his finger at the camera. Yeah. It's, it's such a great little flair and that sets the tone for everything. It feels, um, specifically nineties in a way. I I mean that as a compliment, but like, this is something like, like indie, it feels like indie film kind of energy, you know, it's like, it's clearly, I mean, this isn't like a huge movie, but it's clearly got some money behind it. Like, it's got this really gorgeous production design. It should be mentioned, this movie got two Oscar nominations for right. production design and costume design. And and we should also talk about that because, uh, you know, I know it's not relevant today, but a, a fascist uprising. Oh, yeah. No. Well, uh, how would we how would we have anything to compare this to? You know, right. It It, it is not your uh, swords and and. What you think of when you think of a Shakespeare play, this is uh, om- it's almost like the prequel to V for Vendetta, I would say. Like it does have that kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We should mention that. Like if you're if you're uh, not familiar with the movie, this does not take place during like the 15th century. This is not like an accurate period version of Richard III. This takes place in the 1930s, and it's kind of an alternative history where. Uh, uh, the the civil war depicted in Richard the Third actually happens 450 years later in the 30s, and kind of seeing the fallout from that. And the production designers again, they did a lot of really clever little things, like some of the buildings. And I would notice this having not spent enough time in London to recognize all the landmarks, but the landmarks are in the wrong places. 
they digitally moved some of them around in certain play- scenes just to kind of heighten the fact that this is like an otherworldly kind of uh, a reality and like not everything is going to be exactly where you think it's going to be. And so there, we never see them turn specifically into Nazis. Like you don't see any swastikas in this. They're not like Nazi Nazis, but the imagery is definitely meant to evoke Nazism. Right, right. When Richard finally does take power, he gets up and there's the banners <laughs> with the boar's head. Yeah. Which are basically his swastika. Really uh, evocative image. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It just works so well. And just how much... Uh, how desperate he is into holding on to power that, that it fits everything. Uh, the it is just so unique, and and I I'm I'm a sucker for like oh we're gonna take Shakespeare and turn it into lions or you know with Lion King or sure. or, or or any adaptation of oh it's Julius Caesar but it's in 30 Chicago or or whatever. I'm yeah. a sucker for that stuff. Uh, I am too. I I've uh, I've gone to bat many times for the movie O, which is a adaptation of Othello and it's quite yeah. it's like quite good. Like I'm not even joking. It's quite a good movie. Yeah. Um yeah, so I I think it's I'm all for it. Like that's kind of the great thing about these properties being so old and so well established is that you can play around with them and you can find new meanings for it, you know, and it's become a little bit of a cliche in the theater community. I remember I did a, uh, a production of Macbeth back in college uh, where we reset it in uh, the early 1980s punk scene in, in uh, Tribeca in that area, you know, so like it's <laughs> it's a thing like everybody's got their own interpretation of everything. But it can still find like some really potent ways to work, and it does here, I think. Right. Well, do you remember the uh, in New York City they had the Shakespeare in the Park like a few years ago that was Donald Trump as Julius Caesar? Oh yeah, that's right. He tried to get that shut down, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. You know, because he's that's, a big that's tough exactly, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm almost like reluctant to draw too many uh, parallels between this movie and what's going on in real life now, just because. When this oh, airs, the painful. election will be over. Uh, like, I don't know what the world is going to look like when you're hearing this. So, like, yeah, things could be significantly worse, or we could have heeded the messages that are being played out in this movie and uh, uh, done something to eliminate fascism in our country. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, so, uh, you know, I know this is after Election Day, but go vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go vote now. Go yeah. vote again. If you haven't voted now, get in your DeLorean. Go back. Vote now. Vote often. Vote early. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I and again, I want to talk about the production design. Like, I love. I'm a sucker for like an ornate ceiling shot from low angles. I don't know. It's just an old. I don't know. It's a very specific thing that I like, but it's used to great effect here. Like it's, it's the gilded cage effect, right? Like you want to see that the ceiling is as ornate and lush and beautiful as you can imagine, but it is still a ceiling. It is still preventing you. You are still trapped in here. And I think that's what this does very well. And, uh, amazing costume design as well. Interestingly, uh, both of those Oscars, they lost to a movie called restoration, which also stars Ian McKellen and Robert Downey Jr., Oh, hold so, on. I have never even heard of this movie. What? Is yeah, this movie? I don't really know what that one's about. I know they were shooting this movie restoration um, before uh, this idea, before before they start working on this. And Ian McKellen was actually just very impressed with Robert Downey Jr. and asked him to do a part in this movie, not expecting him to take it because he's like a really busy actor. And apparently Downey just like immediately cleared his schedule okay. and said, I'm going to drop everything and do this movie. OK, so uh, I, I just looked this up. 
It stars Robert Downey Jr. as a 17th century medical student exploited by King Charles II. Okay. Yeah, so we're we're not like, even like totally far afield from what this movie is. It is like a a period drama of the era. Yeah, so yeah, we're not totally far off. Oh wow, Meg Ryan's in that. Okay, yeah, I think I, I'm vaguely remembering that now. And Sam Neill and Hugh Grant, like, wow. and uh, Palpatine himself. Wow, this wow. is a this is a cast that might be worth checking out. It's two time Oscar winning film, Restoration from 1995. I'm going to track that one down. Uh, yeah, so we get some great, like, saxophone music on the soundtrack in this movie. It's nice, like, uh, I don't know, kind of like historical noir feeling to it. I don't know. It, it's an interesting vibe that this movie puts off. And we get to meet some of the key players in this movie. So there's uh, Annette Benning playing Queen Elizabeth, and uh, her brother, Robert Downey Jr., is playing Rivers. Rivers is actually... Uh, a couple of characters were combined to be in Rivers. So, like, Rivers is actually four different characters from the play that they just right. condensed down to one. And there and, were, and this is yeah. after Rivers puts out the album uh, Pinkerton, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, after that, uh, they'd far, they'd, they'd peaked a long time ago. You know, it was just pork R- and beans from then on out. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> no good ever game of that. Uh, but he's got a good ratitude about it, so I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, so yes, we have Annette Bening playing Queen Elizabeth. And what do you think of the decision to cast an American uh, as the queen? Like, what do you think is trying to be conveyed there? I thought it was an interesting choice. I mean, first of all, it's a slight foreign thing, right? Like, like the idea that the queen isn't necessarily of her subjects, right? And this hmm. is something that Richard tries to get across really early on. That uh, when he talks to his brother, um, oh God, was it Clarence? Yeah, yeah, Nigel Hawthorne. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When he he's talking to his brother, he's like, "Hey, it's it's not our other brother uh, Edward, who's currently the king. It's the queen. She's doing this, right?" And he keeps he keeps bringing that up. And the idea of like, oh, well, if she's an American, there's something off about her. There's yeah. something different, and it, it, the idea of like that she is an invader in this land and is not of England. It's also it feels period appropriate, I guess. I I think of I mean it's it's a little earlier than this actually happened in real life, but I think of uh, Grace Kelly going from so in my head canon like Queen Elizabeth in this movie was a former movie star who like met this king and had this fairy tale kind of Camelot romance and and was swept off there. So I'm wondering if it's an allusion to that or it could be a commentary on just her social climbing. You know that she's she was able to successfully infiltrate the royal family of the British Empire, you know? Right. Or it could just been a random casting, but this movie feels so meticulous that I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And I love I love Annette Benning. Uh she's great. Um yeah, and uh, uh Robert Downey Jr. is doing very good work in this. He's got a small part, but uh again he's able to make it all feel pretty natural. And um right. yeah he's he's doing a good job. Some of the other is important- this uh, oh, yeah. before or after he wakes up, uh, you know, in someone else's house? I I, f- I forget when this is during his like oh man, owl days. I want to say it was getting really bad around like ninety seven through two thousand. I think that was kind of when it was worse for him. He had a couple DUIs. Um, he got fired off Ally McBeal, a couple things like that. So like, yeah, I think I think it was. He was kind of on his way to that. He'd had drug problems already, kind of off and on, and I think he was uh, kind of heading towards bottoming out. And and weirdly, I think that actually kind of works for his character, though. Yeah, the uh, character is a little uh, a little debauched, a little bit of a, a little bit of a libertine, you know. 
Right, which uh, comes in when he gets uh, Kevin Baconed from uh, Friday the 13th. Oh, my God. That was, the, yeah, that was, first of all, immediately the reference I thought of when I saw that. And secondly, <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right. So we're definitely doing a this isn't your daddy Shakespeare kind of thing because, uh, and we'll we'll jump ahead a little bit, but Rivers is eventually assassinated while receiving oral sex uh, in a kind of long, drawn-out hey, hey, scene. Steve, Steve, mm. don't don't kink shame. It could be toe sucking. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be. I'm not, you know, hey. I'm not. I didn't see exactly where she went. We just saw his face, but um, but <laughs> yeah. he Downey is. He's in bed. He's like got one arm tied to the bedpost. He's shirtless. And then all of a sudden you just see like a knife blade coming from <laughs> under the bed and going through his stomach. And I'm like, holy it, shit. It is so shocking. It was a I, good I was special not effect expecting too. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just, wow. And I mean, you think like there have been bloody Shakespeare adaptations before, you know, and this isn't, this doesn't come anywhere close to like Titus Andronicus or anything like that. Like that came out a couple of years after this, but uh, right. yeah, definitely uh, a little bit on the edgy side, definitely trying to age things up a little bit for modern audiences. Um, yeah. A couple of the other key players are Jim Broadbent, who's playing Buckingham here. Who's like, uh, uh, he's like the Lindsey Graham. He's like a, the sycophant, like the, the guy who wants to get ahead by saying and doing anything. <laughs> And, he looks uh, so pleased with himself in every interaction. He does. He looks like such a smug little bastard. Uh, and again, the, like, you know, I, I don't know how the vote panned out, but I mean, this should be like a warning sign to people. Like this is, this is kind of the end result of this extreme level of ambition and narcissism. Like this is the extreme result. And this is kind of what we were living through, you know, at the time that we recorded this, like it, it's, it's a scary thing to see. And it's also important to note that like all of the con collaborators with him are gone or they're in dead or they're in prison or they've been abandoned in some way or the other. Like it, it always pans out that way. I don't know. I'm going to get off my soapbox about it, but I, hey, Steve, you just made sure that, uh, this podcast gets like a few one star reviews. So. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I got a few more of those. I'm coming my way. Uh, I really want to highlight, um, Ian McKellen's performance here because goddamn, this is a magnetic performance, like from end to end. He got nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor for this. He didn't get the Oscar nomination somehow. Like, I don't know how that happened. I, I, I don't either. Like, it just it baffles me. Yeah. And I, I don't Holy remember shit. who won this year. 95, like Braveheart won Best Picture. I don't remember what who won Best Actor. I mean, it might have been Mel Gibson, honestly. I don't remember. Um, no, it Which, was Sean Penn. It was Sean. No, it wasn't Sean Penn. I'm wrong. Okay. Forget it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Ian McKellen is just like, well, first of all, props to him. He's, he's got like, um, a disfigurement, like one of his arms doesn't function and McKellen feels so comfortable with this. Like his, his, uh, one armed acting is like seamless. Like this is clearly somebody who hasn't had the use of this arm for years. He knows how to get around without it. And that's what McKellen's doing here. Like he's just getting around, you know, he's, he's working that one hand very dexterously to just get everything done that he needs to get done while still kind of like nursing some obvious pain and stuff like that. Right. Right. And more over like what he actually does, like how he opens things and uh, and like at one point takes his ring off to put on a woman's hand. Yeah. He uses his mouth like how uh, someone who has actually been unable to use their hand for a little while does. Like, yeah, it, it, it's completely uh, 
just like yeah yeah that is it's, that is how uh people who can't use their hand and i i i I've had an accident where I wasn't able to for a little bit. And yeah, you adapt. You you you, uh, you make it work, and and that's kind of it. Feels like a very lived in decision. Like he he so fully embodies this character that it's just kind of automatic for him, which is great. That whole scene in the morgue, incidentally, between him and Kristen Scott Thomas, who is playing uh, Lady Anne Neville. She is the widow of the former king. And she is the uh, uh, basically Richard sets his sights on her and she becomes his <laughs> wife. Right. And he Man. keeps he keeps telling us like, oh, she's going to wed me, even though I killed her husband and his father. Yeah. And then we're like, OK, how the hell are you making this happen? And then he, we see that morgue scene where we see exactly how he makes it happen. He turns on the charm. He's self-effacing. He's he's like genuinely sorry. He's on his knees begging her forgiveness, holding the knife. And like he's going so quickly between like, like he's seductive in this scene, and, and you, it's not something you would think capable. Like the character would be capable of that. We've seen him so far. And he's kind of clumsy. He's like sickly looking. He's he's wan and just like sort of mutters to himself. You don't think he's got this like snake charmer energy to him, but he really lays it on. And. Uh- and and Steve, real quick, uh, Nick Cage actually won his Nick Oscar. Nick Cage, that's it. Yep, leaving Las Vegas. Um, that's the right. Yeah, that's a that's a future episode. Yeah. Um. So it, it's it's a really effective scene. He and Chris and Scott Thomas are both really good in it. And at the end of it, you kind of get it. It's like it, it's kind of like all right. There's no way this guy's gonna be able to convince her. It's like, oh shit, he kind of convinced her. Like I almost buy this. Like he, and I think he's also exploiting her kind of need to continue to live in luxury, you know, right. of, of she's, she knows that she's going to need some kind of security, even if it's with this odious man. And, and there's also the added problem of, okay, this is a play. We have two hours to make all the character development happen. You're just going to have to trust us that these people feel the way they do when they do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This one's especially efficient. I was looking at the times between this and the 1955 version, which I actually have seen, weirdly. Uh, this is a full hour and, like, ten minutes shorter than the other version. Like, this is and such an... It's an it's a, uh, 104 minutes long. This is a very, very doable movie. Um, yeah, yeah. And th- it does not waste a breath. Like, no, no. E- even though at ten minutes there's no conversation, doesn't matter. Like we don't, we don't, waste. <laughs> we don't need to get all the backstory and why Clarence is being put in the tower of London. Like we don't necessarily need to, to understand what's at stake. And so we kind of just are spared a lot of like tedious histories, but McKellen just kind of works through this whole movie this way. And just like, as, as the movie goes on and he accrues more and more power, he becomes more gleefully deranged. There are a couple of moments like, the first one, okay, so uh, he he orders the Prime Minister Hastings to be executed, which is weird seeing Carson from Downton Abbey uh, getting hung. But yeah, Jim Carter, Carson from Downton Abbey, uh, playing Hastings. And uh, he, he has him hung, like, to kind of thin out his enemies. And there's a scene where he is, like, lounging on a chaise lounge. He's smoking a cigarette, and he is, like looking at all these close-up photos of the hanged man and just giggling to himself like he's looking at a pinup calendar or something. Like, he's... And then later we get kind of a similar thing. He's watching footage of himself being uh, crowned the new king of England, and he's laughing and smiling, and he's so exuberant about how great this footage looks. 
And at the same time, he's ordering the murder of his two young nephews while giggling and smiling. Like, he is so far beyond redemption. It's pretty amazing to watch. <laughs> and and it, it works so well when he's, like, keeps telling people, like, oh, I, I don't have anything against any single person in England more than I would have against a newborn child. Right. Like, everyone loves me, and I love them. Right. And it's so good. Like, you know how he finagled his way, and what makes us crazier is everyone knows he's doing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, they they set the stage for that very early. Like, it's obvious from the get-go that the the York side of the family doesn't trust Richard, you know, so he's kind of conned his way. I mean, we should mention, like, his ascension to power is basically just him scheming and leaving the bodies of his family behind him. So right. his he, mother is just like, I hate you. Yeah. I wish I had never given birth to you. And that's and his response was, huh, it's weird that she didn't wish me a long life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's still the closest he comes to looking like reprimanded at all or to looking like something impacted him is when his mother basically just expresses her hatred for her own son. Like pretty brutal. Uh, but yeah, he he has his brother Clarence killed because he knows the news will upset his older brother so bad that he'll die. He's in very frail right. health. And, and, and how, do you remember how he does this? Because this is such a like thousand IQ play. Like he, um, well, in the in the movie, it's he has two guys go and like slit his brother's throat in the bathtub at the Tower of London. Right, right. But uh, I mean, how how it plays out is. He had his brothers so angry at each other yeah. that the king declared him to be a, in a death sentence. The king declared Clarence is going to die. And then Clarence, and then the king says, you know what? I, I made a mistake. I'm going to just go ahead and, and stay this execution. And he instead burns that notice that, that, uh, that the, uh, you know, that the king has decided to pardon his brother right. and makes two people it makes his two henchmen do it. And then it's like, tells his brother, like, well, you ordered his death. It was done as soon as you ordered it. Like it's such a, yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It still leaves it on him. And you know, and the King Edward is frail enough that this kills him. Like the, the, the shock of it is enough to kill him. And so since the children are too young, Richard has to step in as the, the regent and like control the country. And then it's not too long before he uses his little sycophants to consolidate power and just become the full on King of England. At that point, he orders his nephews killed. He orders his brother-in-law killed. He ordered, he, he orders his own wife killed so that he could try and marry his niece before his political enemy can marry her. Right. Like, and, and if there is a scene without Richard in this, he appears in the background and you can see him like having that mustache twirling villainy yeah. as he gets closer to the scene to like enter the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He becomes more and more Hitlery as the movie goes on, like in his hair and his mustache and his styles and everything like that. He's like descending into that imagery. And of course, we get the great shot of him like ascending to the throne and unfurling all these red banners with the boar's head logo on it that looks very suspiciously swastika like. And uh, the point is very clear. But this all culminates in a big battle in the streets of London, which was super cool. So his nemesis here is uh, the future King Henry VII, who goes by Richmond. This is actually the film debut of Dominic West, who you might know from The Wire or from tabloids recently because he's apparently cheating on his wife. 
Uh, I don't know. That's a big thing that keeps coming across my timeline for some reason. I don't care. But, you know, there we I'm, go. I mean, also John Carter. He was great in John Carter. Was he, he in was, John Carter? Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh, one of the Martians, I believe. Okay. Uh, he, he was also uh, Richard Croft in the Tomb Raider movie. Dominic West has had a lot of things. Uh, Jigsaw in Punisher Warzone. I was going like, to say, Punisher Warzone is probably his best role. Um, I love, <laughs> yeah. I love that movie. It's a terrible movie, but I love it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So Dominic West, very good, very handsome in this movie. And he is, uh, uh, he's fled to France so that he can kind of, uh, uh, regain his power and make an actual proper run at Richard who has grown so crazy and so paranoid in his power that he's basically had all of his allies, uh, executed or imprisoned. Like, uh, uh, Buckingham, Jim Broadbent is the last one. He tries to escape to the other side. He's kidnapped and garroted right in front of him. Uh, pretty gruesome. And and then there's this beautiful scene where he wakes up in the middle of the night, terrified of what's what's happening, terrified that he is left alone with no with none of his people with him. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's when he gets that moment of self-reflection the night before this big battle is where he actually gets to acknowledge like, oh, yeah, no, I'm the bad guy here. Like I am, you know, th- this is all because of me. And like. I, I think he kind of snaps out of this reverie. I think he is too um, assured of his own greatness and too vain and too spiteful to let anything go. But yeah. See, see, I think that he knows he's going to lose. And I, I think he's just like, no, I, I'm playing the villain. I'm going to keep playing the villain. Yeah. I, I am just going to do the best I can. Yeah. Yeah. And so we get this final contra- confrontation, which is really cool. We get all this, like the tank battles in the streets of London, which, which you don't expect. You don't expect it to come to this. You don't expect it. Yeah, it, it gets so epic. And I mean, you get Dominic West riding in the back of a Jeep, firing a machine gun and yelling. And then like Ian McKellen has a moment where he grabs a machine gun and is screaming and firing at planes overhead. And I'm like, yeah, Shakespeare. And it's like, it's awesome. <laughs> it's like really exciting. And I love the scene where, uh, so he, uh, Richard is basically defeated. All of his lackeys are dead and we get the, uh, my horse, my horse, a kingdom for a horse scene. I was worried they were going to change it like and say a Jeep, a Jeep, my kingdom for a Jeep, even though he's trapped in a Jeep, you know, but like it works. And he, he's, he's come to realize that like all of these people have died for nothing. And he's really, he's willing to give up all of it just for, an escape just for a way to get out of this situation that he's made. So all these people, all this scheming, all this conniving, and he's going to go down in history as one of the biggest monsters with only a two year reign to show for it. And so that's kind of his ultimate tragedy. That's the end of his hubris. And so he gets up on top of the, he tries to escape uh, Richmond by climbing into these girders. Uh, I love a good girder grid. I don't know. This is a really well shot one. It looks like a shipyard and it's very cool. He's way up high. Richmond pursues him and uh, uh, Richard or I'm sorry. Yeah, Richmond pursues him. Richard throws himself off the balcony. But as he's falling, this was a really interesting choice. As he's falling, Richmond shoots him twice just to make sure. And then he looks at the camera and just kind of winks and smiles. Like, yeah, the last shot we see is McKellen like looking like the devil and falling into this pile of flames while this like jazzy Al Jolson song starts playing extremely cool shot. But I think that one little split second look of Dominic West looking at the camera was so impactful for me because it's like, it's been transferred. 
You know, right, the, right. power corrupts he, absolutely. And it's like, here right. he is. Like, the, the, the power has been transferred, and now he's in control of the narrative. He's the one who's going to be talking to the camera. Right. You're being brought into right. his confidences, and he might not be up to any good either. Right. Dominic West is not a hero. Like, you get the, oh, he's going to be just as bad. Yeah. Oh, really, really well done. Just like in a single glance, like a really well done shot. And then, of course, like it is an awesome like it's a very 1995 CGI effect, but it works and it looks cool of just Richard smiling and his eyes look demonic and his hair is all flushed up and he is literally falling into his own personal hell. And uh, that's the end. Credits roll over that. Like credits roll over that. like, Like they don't even bother going black first. The credits just start rolling. Like he's not even totally in the flame before the credits start crawling up. He's still falling. Like it is a hard cut and it's amazing. It feels like they're like, okay, we have got to make this time. Just don't, don't even bother. We're going to roll credits right now. We're done for the day. Let's go home. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty amazing shot and it caps off definitely one of the most entertaining and like swiftly paced and compact and well acted Shakespeare films I've seen. I think this is a gem. I think this was a really cool uh, find. I'm glad that Ebert signaled, singled it out because, I I mean, it, this is weirdly a movie we just don't talk about at all. And I think it deserves kind of being rediscovered. Right. So, uh, so Steve, one of my ways that I was going to, to view this was actually, um, uh, you can cut around this, but through Torrance. Okay. And I couldn't find it. Yeah. I could not find a way to pirate this film i uh, yeah it, it this is like it's very That's how rare it is radar. and this is an academy award nominated film like you would figure it would be out there but yeah no. yeah it really left no cultural footprint beside being like incredibly acclaimed at the time you know it was it was very well received and then it just kind of disappeared and and that's why i'm glad for the great movies list too because we talked about a movie recently called Mulade, which is a Senegalese film that I never would have seen or even heard of had Ebert not brought it to my attention. And it's wonderful. And I think this is the same way. Like we, I think we said it with Chimes at Midnight, and I think it's even more true here that if you want to try and kind of uh, get somebody into Shakespeare in a way that isn't going to feel overwhelming to them, I think this is a great way to do it. Because then you could just see, you could see it for what it is and kind of ignore the words necessarily. You know, the words are great. The words are amazing. But if those are intimidating to you, this is a really intense and well-acted, well-constructed film. And I think it's a great in if you're not really familiar with the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, This movie blew me away. Uh, I am surprised. Me and my wife write down every movie that we've we've watched together. Oh. And and this is... almost number 560 but um but but we were like no this is up there on the top of this list like this is good and it draws you in so fast yeah really efficiently really efficiently and again the power of that silence in the beginning you are already well into it before he speaks a word so it's just like you're invested you want to see where this is going and uh it's just it's very brilliantly done well, I think that is all I've got on Richard III this week. Andy, thank you so, so much for coming on and discussing this movie with me. I had a blast. This was a blast. Um, where can people find you and all of your stuff and all of your podcasts? Okay. Uh, well, you can find my writings at popculturisthub.com. I just uh, 
I guess I just wrote a uh, list of the best horror movies for people who don't like horror, but this oh. is coming out after election day and not before Halloween. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you still feel like you want some horror in your life after election day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, popcultureshub.com. Otherwise, you can find me on my podcast. I uh, host the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast, mm-hmm. which is a pop culture productivity podcast where me and my co-hosts go over you know the things that we've missed, the things that we've been meaning to get to, and kind of just review them. Steve has been on on a wonderful episode, episode four. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of fun. the PS3 game, Infamous. I sure did. I beat an entire game. <laughs> It was really fun. Yeah, definitely check out Monkey Off My Backlog. We had uh, we had Tessa on the show just last week, actually. So uh, we've got we've got almost the full trifecta on the show so far. Right. Plus, we also advertised on the Flop House. So like, hey, you know, we're, we're we're getting a lot of like overlap here with your uh, recent advert on the Flop House. Yes, yes. Well. And thank you to the Flop House for doing that. And thank you uh, and and welcome any p- potential new listeners who are uh, who are around from that. So thank you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for being here again. We have been Rogers List. You can find us at Rogers List Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. You could also follow us on Letterboxd if you want to see where the list is kind of shaping up. I'm kind of doing a, an informal ranking of the movies I've been watching so far. I'm not setting anything in stone yet. You know, sometimes my moods differ. And like so far, all of these movies, I watch them like with the exception of JFK. I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. No, this one's my favorite. So it changes all the time and I've got to make some hard decisions. Um, and sometimes you want that like weird uh, dead donkey scene from Unchien to Andalu. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You got to, you know, I, I, it's one of my favorite scenes. It's a laugh riot. Um, yeah. So, well, thank you, everybody. Once again, be sure to tune in next week. We are going to be discussing Dark City, which is a very, very friggin' cool sci-fi noir film from Alex Proyas. I friggin' love Dark City. I'm excited to watch it again. It's going to be a lot of fun to get into. So check us out there, and uh, we will see you next time. Good night, everybody. I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. Yes, rolling along. Singing a song. Glory, hallelujah. Just told the parson. Hey, Paul, get ready to call. Just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm going to fall. And I'm sitting on top of the world.